So Pastor Nick thought it would be a great idea to have a three-part mini-series entitled Radiate, How to Live a Life That Glows. I am the third um, one who presents in that little mini-series. Pastor Scott is going to launch us on something else uh, next Sunday. A Life That Glows. I'm looking at James 4, and it's the verses 13 through 17. And we'll take a look at that and just see what it teaches us this morning. Here's what the book of James writes, what God says to us. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Living a life that matters. Yesterday I was at the men's ministry breakfast. Don Bierman had arranged for our two interns, Manny and Isaiah, to just share a bit about how God was shaping their lives. And it was wonderful to hear those two young men speak about that. Both of whom had grown up in the church. Both of whom wondered whether the church really was for them. Both of them found that God was shaping their lives in the context of the church, even when they weren't taking it too seriously. And guys who are now just excited about what God is doing, who are discovering their gifts, who are pursuing education, who are wanting to make a difference in God's kingdom, who want to live a life that matters. I'm sitting there. And I'm thinking, as one of the old guys there, have I lived a life that matters? I don't know if you follow the Today devotionals. Uh, There's copies of it available on the desk, uh, information desk. Uh, But if you follow it along, you'll find that Ron Vanderwell, who's writing them this month, will say this tomorrow. This is tomorrow's devotionally. This is how it starts. Deep inside each of us is a powerful desire to have a good life story. When our days on earth are completed, most of us want to be remembered warmly and with respect as people who lived wisely and finished well and maybe even prospered by God's blessing. Many of you are aware that my transition is about to happen. At the end of August, I'm going from full-time to part-time. I'm retiring, as some would say, although maybe that's not a very good word to use. And in my case, I'm glad I'm not retiring and leaving Redlands and just quitting one day and not doing ministry anymore. The council is giving me the privilege of continuing to be involved in a in a, a more reduced um, position. 
I'm happy for that. I uh, was thinking about that a little bit, living a life that matters, and wondering exactly um, what it's going to look like going into the future, as well as looking back. This passage in James has some things to say to us about that. One of the things that it says to us about this initially is pretty startling. Right in the middle of this passage, it says, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I thought about that a bit. And I thought about last week when we were in Denver. We were with our kids and grandkids. Our two grandkids were across the street with some of their friends in the neighborhood. And, uh, and they were, they, one of the neighbor kids had a kind of um, a bubble-producing machine, soap bubble-producing machine. And so instead of each of the kids having one of these little things that you put into the little jar and then have to blow and then you watch the bubble, this machine just kept producing a mass of bubbles. It was wonderful to behold, but it was also interesting to notice how quickly every bubble just popped and vanished. And that's the picture James is trying to have us catch here in connection with some folks that he's talking about. Because what James is doing is focusing on a group of people who were simply making plans and doing things outside of the understanding that God is actually in charge of your life. So these were businessmen and women, uh, Jewish merchants, who would move around, who would make business trips, who would make plans to go to a city and set up shop and do business and make money. Paul actually ran across a couple of these in the context of his missionary journeys. Uh, and they became members of his congregations. Aquila and Priscilla, this couple, traveled about. They were those traveling merchants. Lydia, the maker of purple cloth, Paul ran into her. She was one of those merchants that would travel and set up shop and sell her purple cloth and make money and then move on. What's interesting is what is said about this whole process. What is said about it is, James says, don't you know that you are just boasting and bragging? The literal translation here, you are boasting in your arrogant pretensions. There's a kind of a misplaced confidence. There's a misplaced confidence in their own ability to just decide to do things and to know what the results will be. The picture gets a little bit filled out when you read a little bit further in the book of James. And this is in those verses right after where I stopped reading. This is into chapter 5 in the Bible. There originally were no chapters and verses, so you just have to understand that James was just continuing to write his letter. And this is what he says there. Now, listen, this is 5 verse 1, you rich people 
weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. You see the picture that you're getting here? It's a picture of people who were very self-centered, who had no sense of love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and treat those who work with you in the way that you would want to be treated. That's what James is trying to get at here. I was thinking a little bit about that. Um... And the name of Howard Hughes came to mind. I don't know if that name rings a bell with any of you. Howard Hughes. And what's nice about the internet is that, okay, you think of this name, and you can right away do a little search on this guy. And I did. And uh, Wikipedia was very helpful to remind me a little bit about the details of Howard Hughes. He lived... Uh, from December of, of 1905 until 1976. And he's described here as an American business magnate, investor, aviator, aviator, aerospace engineer, filmmaker, philanthropist. He was one of the wealthiest people in the world. One of the most influential aviators in history. He sent multiple world airspeed records, built the huge Hughes H-1 racer, the H-4 Hercules, better known as the Spruce Goose, right? The Spruce Goose aircraft, one of those huge aircrafts that was designed to carry troops during World War II from the United States to Europe and avoid the dangerous shipping lines that were in the Atlantic that the um, resulted in attacks on ships by the Nazis in those days. It never got built in time. And what's famous about the ship is that Hughes actually, um, he flew it for less than a mile just to demonstrate it. It was airworthy in his days. Oh, yeah, there you go. Terry, you came up with that. Wow, thank you. So he was six foot four, handsome guy. Um, popular with all the women. He was also remembered for his eccentric behavior and reclusive lifestyle in later life. Caused, it says here, by worsening obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, and chronic pain. And when he died, this is what they found. It's a pretty awful story. He was he was a guy that was living in penthouses in Las Vegas and Acapulco and would oftentimes buy the casinos when they made trouble for him. There was a time when he lived for nine years in a penthouse in Las Vegas. And when he finally left, they 
um, the, the motel workers went up into the room, into the penthouse, and they discovered that the curtains had never been opened, that they were rotting on their hangers. He was on an airplane flying to Houston to a hospital there. And um, he was practically unrecognizable. His hair, beard, fingernails, and toenails were long. His tall, six-foot-four-inch frame now weighed barely 90 pounds. And the FBI had to resort to fingerprints to identify the body. Subsequent autopsy noted kidney failure as the cause of death. This richest man in the world was in extremely poor physical condition at the time of his death. He suffered from malnutrition. X-rays revealed five broken-off hypodermic needles in the flesh of his arms. And, and he used, uh, he injected codeine into his muscles, used glass syringes with metal needles that could easily become detached. And that's how he ended. This is a man who perhaps in the heyday was sure and confident about his power and what he could do and what he could accomplish. And in the eyes of the world, he accomplished a lot. But TWA, Transworld Airline, Airlines, and it merged with American Airlines later, but that was one of the things he did. And he, and he spent millions of dollars buying property and selling property. The perspective of James is that it's evil to do that, to operate that way, to be so self-focused and so self-centered. And Howard uses perhaps a dramatic example of what can happen to a person later in life when that's all he's got. Vacation plans. I wondered a little bit as I was thinking about this whether I was a a little guilty of that same sort of thing. Ruth and I spent some time vacationing this summer. It, we started planning about this. We started planning this already back in December, much to Pastor Scott's chagrin at some level because one of our values was to make sure we aren't both gone at the same time. Well, this year it didn't happen. We're both gone at about the same time. But we were planning this vacation time already back in December. There were lots of plans that we had. Ruth and I wanted to get to Iowa to visit her mother and to visit her relatives there. So we spent some time in June in Iowa. And then we were planning to have our family gather for a few days in Colorado Springs. And so it meant coordinating travel from Canada and Denver and Southern California to get there at the right time and then coordinating that with some of the other vacation plans that our own kids had, and to get all 21 of us together at the same place at the same time. And then on top of that, I had plans to meet with my siblings. I have two brothers and two sisters, and we're all married, and so the 10 of us were going to get together. 
This is something we plan to do every other year, and this was the summer for that. And all of those moving parts that included travel, road trips, and scheduling flights, it was all put in place. And I don't know, frankly, honestly, whether I ever really said consciously, if the Lord wills, we will do this and do that. And as we planned, hearing that scripture that says, you don't even know about tomorrow. So what are you doing? Because one of the things that you see in this passage is the focus on God. God is in charge. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. We're reminded of the sovereignty of God. We're reminded of the power of God in all of this. I I mentioned earlier the, the, the kinds of news stories that we are hearing. One of the things, as my brothers and sisters and our spouses, as we spend time talking, is... The conversation drifts to world events. The conversation drifts to politics. And and I, I will have to say sometimes we ended up sounding so pessimistic. Everything is going wrong. Everything seems to be off the wheels, off the rails. And, and at some point, I, I think we, we stopped that conversation long enough to say, but you know what? God's still in charge. That's what we believe. That's what we hold to. That's what we hang on to. God is in charge. God works things out. It oftentimes starts with the small stories where we Work hard to make a bit of difference. And maybe it seems pretty tiny and insignificant. But it is what God calls us to. Pastor Kelly Price, committing to prayer, committing to connecting with my son Joel and being part of the team with my son Joel as he launched his ministry. The news of this death was very hard on Joel because it was so unexpected, so sudden. Kelly must maybe 50 years old or so. But the passage keeps pointing us to God. And that has an impact for these merchants because there's a big story going on here and it has an impact for us. And the Bible's perspective in all of this is simply to say, trust him. Trust me. Some of you maybe have heard me tell the story about how I ran into this passage of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. It's in the context of going to the Loma Linda University Medical Center. Jeannie DeVries was in the ER there. Her son Steve called me and said, it looks like mom is not conscious. We don't know what's going to happen. I went there. Wasn't that familiar with how to get to the ER. 
I went into the front doors of the medical center. I went up to their desk and asked for some directions on how to get to the ER. Make my way down the hall, down an elevator. Step out of the elevator and there's another long hall that you walk. And as I walked, I couldn't help noticing the scripture verses on the walls there and on the elevator doors there. And right on those elevator doors were these words from James, uh, from 1 Peter 1 verse, uh, 1 Peter 5 verse 7. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. What, what a great little message to take to my visit with Steve as he sat at the bedside of his unconscious mother. What a great message for all of us. As we think about how to live life and are we making any kind of difference and how do we live a life that radiates? How do we live a life that glows in the words of the title of the series? The scriptures give us this perspective that God created us in his image. Psalm 8 talks about the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider the heavens, this is from Psalm 8, verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He made us in his image. He gave us responsibility. He gave us things to do. And so we can pursue with energy those things, those businesses, that work, that life's vocation, that vacation that is in front of you. But you do it always, remembering that you're God's image bearer. You do it always recognizing what it is that Jesus Christ has done for you. What, that God sent his only begotten son because we are broken and lost and we need redemption and we need wholeness and we need to be put back together. We need to be reconnected with our Father in heaven through Jesus Christ, his son. And then we can say in the words of Matthew, Jesus' Sermon on the don't worry what you eat, what you drink, what you're going to wear. That's what the pagans get concerned about. That's a strong word, isn't it? That's what the pagans get concerned about. And your heavenly Father knows that you need him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. 
The word conclusion is there in those notes. I put these together about three weeks ago before I left on vacation. I had no idea what the conclusion would look like. But God did. And this is what God did. We're sitting there together in this family reunion of my siblings and our spouses. And we're having a bit of a worship service there in Breckenridge, Colorado, 10,000 feet in the air. We're sharing some scripture. All of us are of the age where we're married, have children, and grandchildren. And one of the questions that we asked each other was, and what kind of faith would we like to see our children practice and our grandchildren see and grow into? And it took a while for us to kind of get into that. But it was very clear as we began that conversation that we wanted our kids and our grandkids to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior and Lord, personally. And that we wanted them to have some sense of what the Scripture teaches about all of that, but also about how we live that out. It never stops simply with, I believe Jesus is my Savior and Lord. The question the Scriptures always open up for us, and now what? And this is next. This is what you do. And so we wanted them to have some sense of the fullness of the Christian life and how that gets worked out in their work, in their marriages, in the raising of their families. The Lord willing, on August 31, I'll be able to be up here again. I want to say a little bit more about how I was shaped and where the Lord has me these days. But the thing that we also went to back in Breckenridge a week or so ago was this magnificent statement of faith that we know as question and answer one from the Heidelberg Catechism. question gets asked there, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer that we find there is, my only comfort in life and in death is I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. 
He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Heavenly Father. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. You want a life that radiates? You want to live a life that glows? Hear and practice words like that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, your love is everlasting. Your love never ends. You hold on to us in ways we never dreamed was possible. You knew us before the creation of the world. You worked it out in such a way that people like me grew up and learned to know that you sent your only begotten Son that whoever believes in him, that if I believe in you, I will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so, Lord, make all of us here who hear these words from James be convinced that our life really is not a mist after all, that we aren't people that are here now and then disappear, but that we are your children whom you will take into your eternity in your good time and who now are called to live for you with all that we have and all that we are. Thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name.